Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Chris, cheers for coming on uh, your own podcast. I know you're a busy bloke uh, doing podcasts and things like that. So thanks for your time. You're very welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for asking me, mate. No, no, well, uh, having an interesting story like you've got, I just thought we'd try and, like, delve into it a little bit. What was it like uh, growing up as a young lad? Because I know you grew up, was it in the south-east of London? Well, I was born in uh, south-east London in a, um, uh, in a place in Kent called Bromley, but I didn't really, I didn't really know it that well, John, because we moved down south when I was, um, gosh, about four. Um yeah, I always just, I don't like to get into too many sort of details about it. Not not because I'm evasive, but more like I'm massively into forgiveness. You know, I think forgiveness is, if someone apologises for something, then forgiveness is everything. And what I'm trying to say is it, there were some times that weren't, you know, they were quite challenging for a, for a toddler, I suppose you could say. Um, the seventies in itself for some of us, not, not everybody, but, but for a lot of us, it was quite a violent time. There were, um, for, a, abuse was rife and it was always brushed under the, you know, for the most part brushed under the carpet. Um, physical punishment was just the, the normal thing back then. So any adult, if they had, re- if they, if they thought they had a good enough reason to, could just come up and, you know, smack a kid around, around the head, and and what this, this happened to me uh, on at least one, I think two occasions. Just random strangers in the street come over and belt you. I, I ain't done anything wrong, John. I, they must have either mistaken me for a, someone else, or, or um, yeah, or had. How, how old were you when that happened? Oh gosh, we're talking like a young child, so five or six. Um, walk, I was walking past a, an arcade uh, in, in a fairground. I got separated from my mum for for a, sort of a few seconds, maybe maybe a minute or so, and some guy came running out of the amusement arcade and just smacked me round round the round the ear. <laughs> And my mum came up and I'm like, she said, what, what are you doing? I said, oh, that, that bloke just hit me, mum. She's like, what? Why didn't, you, why didn't you say anything? Well, John, I didn't say anything, John, because that was normal when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, that was just, that, that's what adults did to you. And you just thought it was something that you must have done wrong, right? So quite, quite a violent time. My parents went through lots of separations, which ended in divorce. I went to, I think, six or seven schools altogether. I think I'd that got makes it hard to make friends, doesn't it? If you're moving around all the time. When I was at school, if a kid come to school, it'll take them six months before anyone talks to them because they're an outside. And if you just kept moving time, you made friends, you're probably moving on again. 
yeah, it was quite funny, really. The girls always would fancy me and the boys would always want to fight me. <laughs> Just that thing, isn't it? Rivalry when you're growing up. But as you said, when you've got to do that six different times at such a young, impressionable age, you know, what, what we're essentially talking about is childhood trauma. Yeah, yeah. And the difference between an adult going through PTSD and a child is a child doesn't know any different. He can't compartmentalize and make sense of it like an adult can so for example an adult experiences a horrendous road traffic accident yeah it's horrible you wouldn't wish anyone to go through that sort of thing but they're adults they have the ability to make sense of it to seek any form of therapy you know whether it's in their head or, or seeing a professional and get over it when you're a child you don't have that so it's all internalized and as such it then stays with you for life because it, it becomes a kind of like an entrenched neural pattern you know in your neural pathways that that become so uh, rigid as you get older that that even though you can come up with mechanisms to deal with the symptoms so anxiety, depression, feelings of inadequacy, fear of um, interaction with, let's just say, aggressive people, this, this sort of stuff. You know, you can come up with ways to cope with that as an adult, but the, the, the trauma is done. It, it, it's, it, it's in there. And, um, and uh, yeah, this is why we've got <laughs> to treat our children uh, the right way and this isn't a like i'm not a victim john i died i yeah. don't all i don't believe in all those words and stuff i've i've had a very challenging life at times as we're probably going to talk about um but it's also been a life i i wouldn't change and it's allowed me to explore so many avenues as a result of probably not having this stable upbringing and, and asking questions um but now I, I kind of feel like I've got all the answers that anyone's ever really going to get in this lifetime. And that's well, childhood's dead important. Even if you become successful, you, you look at like a childhood for a serial killer. It gives it like a blueprint of that's probably why they end up where they are. And it's the same with a lot of athletes. That's why they've ended like Tiger Woods' his son, uh, dad forced him to play golf at a very young age and pushed him and things like that. So your childhood's so important, isn't it, to what you'll be when you're older? And obviously the trauma and things that you go through. Very much. And I think what we need to remember with situations like Tiger Woods is, of course, he's mixed race. Race is, I don't even know if that's the right, right word. We're all the human race, aren't we? But he's mixed colour. And of course, he's growing up in a land where racism is still a very serious issue. Um and to grow up with that, your identity in question from when you're a baby to when you're an adult, you know, with someone like myself, I, I, I won't profess that I can understand what that, that identity crisis must be like. And of course, as he got older, you, you, I mean, I I'm, 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 can't use Tiger Woods as an example because I don't know the guy, but I'd say somebody in his position would manifest these um what we call in in the addiction world acting out behaviors as a way of um 
gosh, why do you act out as a way of dealing with the unintentionally? You don't know why you're acting out. You just think you're going for a beer or buying some drugs and it's going to make you happy. But but deep down, of course, what you're doing is masking that underlying feeling of inadequacy or or, or discontent. So. Well, it's weird what you remember from when you were younger as well, isn't it? I, I'll always remember when I was at school, it's quite a religious school, and I questioned, how could you get all the animals into Noah's Ark? And I got, instead, I was an idiot. I had to stand outside. But when you were younger, you're like, oh, am I an idiot? I just thought, well, how big's the boat? And even from a young age, you remember little things, don't you think? Oh, I got made to feel like an idiot then, whereas like a few years later, I'm glad that I asked that, really. Yeah. Um, I teachers do a lot worse to me, mate, you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, serious scarring stuff that that no child should ever have to go through, and and I'd I'd like it would be great if some really clever scientist could put some probes on my brain and and just tell me how much that's affected me over the years, because like like I say, so traumatized as a child that you're physically shaking and you can't move or speak. And you just, if there was a hole and it could open up and swallow you, that would be the best out, the best out outcome. Um, and let's not forget, you know, I, I say the 70s is obviously for some children, it still goes on to this day. As you say, if you're a child and you've never known love, then you don't know how to love. That's, that's I think, the definition of what being a sociopath is. Um, you don't want too many of those in in society and I guess from the situation that we, you know we've all ended up in with respect to the the, the global um, structure we're probably ruled over by a bunch of sociopaths you know people you that, look at the Epstein situation don't you Epstein got found to be basically a pedo and uh, his sentence was working from home wasn't it in his office for a few years and obviously later on yeah, he, he, he was going to get a decent sentence. But that, that first sentence, he, he should have been behind bars. And you see people that sell it weed that might get four year, but he's inviting people back to his mansion, doing terrible things. And obviously, because who he is and who he knows, he's just working from home on tag, basically. That's what he got. And that's just one person in a position of power. Think of the thousands upon thousands of others. You know, he's a scapegoat. He's a convenient scapegoat that makes it look like it was one weirdo. Yeah, yeah. But clearly, there must be a whole subculture of these, uh, you know, sick individuals that rather than come to terms with with their own traumas and their own um, shortcomings, they, they, like I say, they're acting out isn't the taking drugs or the drinking or it might might be as well there there's this pray, preying upon vulnerable other people to get this feeling of of power that, that that they clearly don't feel that they you know this feelings of adequacy that they clearly don't have and awful mate absolutely awful well every normal person like me you everyone in the uk you, you see like the times that they get in jails don't you, you see like drug dealer five-year murderer maybe 10 year, something like 10 to 15 year. Then you see like paedophile, 2000 images downloaded, 20 counts of touching a minor, eight month. 
And you just think, how, how could you possibly get eight months or something? It's so disgusting. Why isn't that higher than like a murderer or a drug dealer and things like that? Well, the reason is, and in order to understand all this, John, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not assuming that you don't, but for, for the benefit of your audience or my audience, approximately, let's just say 8,000 years ago in the times of Babylon, you might hear the, the name Babylon, this greedy little bunch of narcissists got together and they create something called the money system, right? They worked out that rather than using money as a, as a fair system of exchange, like you come and, I don't know, plow my field, John, I'm going to yeah. give you 10 loaves of bread, right? That's all it was. It wasn't about profiting at me, profiting over you or trying to get my power by screwing you up, right? It was just a system of exchange. And then these greedy little men said, well, hang on, let's, let's take the bread out of the equation. Or they used to trade with things like, periwinkles i think it was and you know cockle shells and it, it, it didn't matter it was just for exchange right they took that out of the equation they started writing numbers on bits of paper calling it money right right so you chuck your cockle shells in their vault they're 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 safe they'd write you this promissory note that told you how much you you, you you've got and then what they, they did is they moved these operations into churches and temples and palaces by kind of um, slowly corrupting the, the leaders, so the religious leaders, the kings, the, the presidents, wh whoever they might be. And what that did is it gave them a, 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 an aura of superiority, like, you know, this isn't just about the money. I'm 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 to do with this church, so I'm I'm something to do with God, so I'm rep. You know, I've, you've got to respect me, right? And it was just all a all a all a scam. It's it's the most evil system that they came up with. So they're keeping this ledger of of stuff they've got in their vault, and then they, as greedy human beings do, quickly worked out how they could fiddle the ledger, and start lending more of these bits of paper out than they actually had. Um, Good goods in the vault, so to speak, and then doing people deals, what what we would now call loans, that then had to be paid back with interest, right? And in biblical terms, it's called usury, right? Money lending. Hence, why in in, in the Bible, and I, I'm not saying this to be religious or anything, but you know, it's a very clever book. A lot of those lessons. This is uh, you see Jesus through the money lenders out of the temple. It's it's because. Uh, he realized this was a system that was going to fully enslave man if it didn't stop, right? It wasn't about them using his God's house, although, it, you know, it, it obviously was as well. So what's happened is these religious leaders that should be looking after their clergy or these kings that should be looking after their people, right? Because that's your job. If you're a king, you're, you're an elected uh, leader, say. I mean, okay, I know kings is normally birthright, but you, the idea is you look after your people. Well, these evil little men started to say to them, well, you know, it's not about looking after your people. It's about how much money you've got in your, your bank account because that, that is how you measure your value of worth. And these people that obviously weren't as smart as these greedy little men went, oh, 
oh, okay. What? So this gold, this, this ring, this makes me important. Yeah, makes you very important, sir. Makes you better than these pet. Oh, you know, and and this is you can see how it all evolved. Metal, gold was just a part of a rock, right? That's all it is. Part of a suddenly had value as, as, ascribed to it, right? And this value is then comes into play and corrupts the minds of the people that should be looking after society. Um, so it to sort of fast forward to where we are now, one of the games that these greedy little men play, I call them the Babylonian money mafia because it comes from ancient Babylon, right? Um, and it's where our all our current system, financial system, stems back from then, right? This fractional reserve banking where a bank only has to have let's say 10% of the money in its account to actually lend out a hundred percent to the public, right? So basically money that doesn't exist, it's just bits of paper with numbers printed on, right? Yeah. It doesn't exist. So then when they want to cause a stock market crash, they just pull in, pull, they raise the interest rates or whatever, and, and then they pull some of the money back in Then people can't are no longer trading. So they can't pay their bills so that so, uh, they can't, they can't pay the the loans back so the businesses start folding the businesses fold people can't buy stuff it, it's just i won't profess i'm the, the cleverest person at understanding it all but i but i i get it right you know it's not difficult to get that if you control the money supply you control everything and in order to perpetuate this system of evil they need corrupt people this is why you see this pedophilia being pushed on the public all over the place, right? At the same time as the public are brainwashed through mainstream media not to see it. The Netflix show that's just come out, um, God, there's a name. Uh, it, 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 I can't remember the name, but I'm sure someone will put it in our, in our comments section. But they've just bought out this program. Uh, this this production and it's 10 year old girls trying to emulate being adult sexy dancers and i mean it's if you went to a strip show in in the reaper barn in um in hamburg you'd be seeing this stuff except this is by 10 year old girls it's insane Talk about trauma, like that. What are them girls going to think when oh. they get to 17, 18? They're going to remember them times, aren't they? 17, Creepy 18 old men and realize that they've had hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of pedophiles masturbating over them, you know, and that their parents let them do it. Yeah, and that this company put it on air, right? Now, why does this happen? It's because when you've got a society full of corrupted people. You can blackmail them. You can blackmail them when they're not holding up, the, you know, the gold standard of behaviour. When they know they're doing wrong, they're, they're blackmailable. And this is why we see these politicians making these outrageous, ludicrous statements and decisions and taking us into wars which clearly don't benefit anybody, right? Or, or 
this current situation that where the mass just it just does not add up to what we're doing to our children's freedoms then you can start to understand it all comes back to this 8,000 years ago or whatever to ancient Babylon where these greedy little bastards got together and worked out a way that they can enslave humanity right and it and it and it and it and it came and it's 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 all grown 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 from there so yeah that's life folks <laughs> i was gonna say that was a childhood bit but uh do, do you think your childhood made you go into the military is it because you had a tough childhood you thought i, I want to get into the military because a lot of people go into military because the dad was in the military or the, the what like 9 11 a lot of americans signed up after 9 11 was it was there any trigger point for you to join the military yeah it's kind of funny really um, like I didn't come from a military fam family. I had kind of second cousins who one was a, a naval commander. So, uh, in fact, no, was he? I think, no, I think he was actually an oil tanker captain. Right. Uh, and another, my, my, my second cousin joined the Royal Marines as a recruit. So as a 16 year old boy and went on to become, I think it was, I think he left as a Lieutenant Colonel. Um, and, but other than that, my sort of direct family, no one, you know, my granddads and stuff weren't in, in the military. I think my great uncle did, um, national service and was in, was in the army as a, but, um, no, I didn't come from that. And I had a phase when I left school, I tried to join the RAF and they wouldn't have me. They said that we don't think you'd stick our training, right? Sorry, I'm laughing, but yeah, I think it's what six weeks of basic training with maybe a, a five mile run chucked in or something. My friend done it and he's not a sporty type of guy. So if he could do it, you're an ultra marathon runner. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, you'd walk the I'm, RAF not, I'm not slagging off the, R, uh, the RAF for, um, for our friends at home. I, I, it, every serviceman, whether they stack blankets, whether they're in the SBS special board, they have an equal, they play an equal and an important role, right? I'm just saying though that, that, that this guy in recruiting office said, you won't, you wouldn't stick our training, son. So, and that was it. I went off, I tried my hand at becoming a, a, an electrician and I hated it. I hated crawling through the, the loft space with all that prickly insulation going down your back. And, and, uh, and then I, I got to a situation where I, I got kicked out of home for the second time. So I was, I used to live with my mother and a stepfather and they threw me out on literally threw me out of the car one day in my school uniform. Um, so I was homeless wandering the streets in my school, school, school uniform thinking, should I sleep in a phone box tonight? <laughs> um, and then I moved in with my dad and it was wonderful. We had a really great relationship. I just loved it. It was like, it was like, it's like the relationship we never had. Like I had a dad, at, you know, because every little boy, doesn't matter if your dad's an idiot, you love your dad, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's such an important role model in your life. So suddenly we're there, we're playing squash. I mean, I was 14 or 15 and he'd take me down the pub and, and I just felt so, I was the only kid I knew I could go out and play, come back when I want, come back three in the morning and my dad, you know, and, and, some people listen will think, oh, that's irresponsible. No, it wasn't. 
it's allowed me to get out and smash it and live my life to foot across 80 countries on all seven of these continents. Um, because my dad put that, I don't know, you know, your father instills some values. Some of them are useless and you just go, yeah, right. I'm not going to do that with my kids. Other ones are brilliant. And that was just the fact he gave me so much freedom. Um, really allow me to, to to go on and live this in this amazing life but going back to the marines uh my dad remarried this woman uh so she became my stepmother within uh in fact i came home from school one day and there's all this decorations in the flat like shit made out of raffia and <laughs> what ornaments and i'm like dad what's all this oh this is uh your new stepmother she's moved like like my dad had only been seeing her for, for for a month or something up at the pub and um yeah and this is no this is no disrespect meant to to this woman she, you know i i can look back now and realize that she had huge challenges in her life to get to get over but of course me being young and messed up, her being young with challenges, it was like that immediately. Yeah. I was never a nasty guy, John. You know, I, 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 I was, I'd stick my ground, but I'd never go out of my way to really be horrible to anyone. It's just not in my nature, right? What I'm trying to say is, I didn't deserve to be thrown out on the street. Not after everything I'd gone through in my life or, or already. But again, another thing about growing up in the 70s and then the 80s was it was always the kids that were wrong you know children yeah. be seen and not heard and all that kind of stuff and oh, anyway and as i said i'm not complaining because it just it's educated me how to look after my child now right so there i am sleeping in my car in a car park right? my, i'm a pioneer stereo speakers like piled on the back seat on top of all my black bags of belongings and my mate rocks up he was i've just joined the royal marines <laughs> he said i've just been on a three-day course it's called the, the prmc oh it's called the prc back then he said basically we've been at limston and they've smashed us they put us through the endurance course the assault course all these gym tests we had to run a half mile and a half in in under you know 10 minutes and, and 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 then they threw us off the high diving ball we had to fall off backwards and whoa and then he turned to me and went because you couldn't do it <laughs> well not that i don't know if he knew that would push my button or not but if you say that to an angry young man then then he's i was like oh yes i can <laughs> so what happened was, and this is all going to be in my book, my my book about how I ran the length of the country. It, it's I, I talk about this. Is we were at, it was it was something like New Year's Eve, and we're all at a, a party at his house, and we're we're all drunk. And I went outside, put my beer down, and I said, right, if I can run a mile around the rock, which was a local land feature without stopping this was the important thing without stopping i'll go down to the recruiting office after the 
after the Christmas break and I'll sign on the dotted line, you know, if they'll have me, right? So I did that run and it, it's crazy that I was 17 years old. Maybe, I don't know if I might have been 18 by then. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I got about half a mile into it, John, and I just wanted to stop, give up. My, yeah. my lungs were pounding. My legs were dead. I just had that feeling of, of death would feel better than this come over me. And then I just thought about my parents, you know, both kicked me out. Both had no problem calling me a failure. And for anyone listening, it, this is all water under the bridge. They, they didn't mean it, right? It's all done, said in the heat of the moment. Silly. My parents were like 23 when they had me. When I was 23, I was still an idiot. I, 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 no way I should have been in charge of human life, right? So they didn't do too bad a job. But as I said, it, it, it got a bit challenging at times. So there I am running along thinking of them. They're kind of, I thought, imagine if I could get a green berry of the Royal Marines Commando, you know. And if, if, if anything, John, it gave me hope, right? I'm living in my car. I'd failed most of my exams at school. College didn't seem to be working out as an electrician. I w and I'm sorry to any bosses listening, but most of you lot that I've worked for, you've just been not the sort of people I want to spend my time with. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's good bosses out there. Of course, I know there are. I'm just, I'm, I'm telling my, my story, right? And um, that was enough to make me keep running and run through that pain, that absolute pain when I wanted to die. And when I complete the man i got back to the village i did i did that i went to the recruiting office and he said jump up there son on that pull-up bar give me some pull-ups some i don't know burly old color sergeant or something right so off i jumped i think i did 29 <laughs> i was only i weighed nine and a half stone john and i've always been like fairly kind of some yeah, like spr sprightly, I, uh, lean, lean, you know, rubbish at running, always have been, still am now, even though I can, you know, run 108 miles non-stop was the last challenge I, I, I did, right, after doing a quadruple Ironman. Um, so I hopped up on that bar, did 29, right, get down, get down, down. And I thought, oh, that's it, failed already. The Royal Marines don't want me. Of course, I'm not realising most guys do like two or three. Like the, the average is five or, or maybe it's five or six. Real good guys maybe do about 10. <laughs> I did 29. On my actual PRC, I did 19. What with all, you know, doing all the other exercises and stuff. And uh, even then I thought I'd failed, John. And when I had my interview, the middle of this three days, you have an interview with a Royal, I think it was a Royal, either a Wren, so Woman's Royal Navy, or, or uh, a female naval officer, which is two, for anyone trying to work that out, it's two, two separate um, uh, careers or disciplines, as, as, as it were. So I'm sat down with this woman, and she said, ah, your potential recruit through, 
you're the one that did 19 pull-ups in the gym, right? And it was only then that I realized, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's yeah. how that's how little kind of belief anyone had ever shown in me in my life. I, 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 I've always kind of liked myself. I've always had real, like, you don't tell me what to do. I will just go and do it and I'll be better than, you know, better than you or at least as good as you i've always had that belief in myself but like outward going self-belief and inward is is almost like two different things right so yeah so that was it i did that three-day prc very very hard there was one point on on the endurance course um so for people who don't aren't familiar what the endurance course is it's uh in training it's a, a four-mile jog through the back lanes of, of um, Exmouth to get to the start line of this course. So you've already done a four-miler. Then you line up in your threes and you hammer through a two-mile long part of the course that is literally just up and down, really steep, um, really steep hills. And it's interspersed with anything up to a hundred meter long tunnels that are submerged. So some of them you've got like a, an inch of breathing space between you and the, the roof. If it's, if it's been raining, for example, and you've got to drag you and all your equipment through and try and keep your rifle as clean as you can. Um, you've got the sheep dip. So it's, a, a, it's two tubes that are sunk underwater and they're about seven or eight feet long. One of the recruits has got to grab you, shove you into it, while the lad at the other side just grabs for anything like your hair or your equipment and pull, pulls you out. You've got to remember, if it's February, which is when I, I did it, it's going, that water's going to be zero degrees, you know, yeah. just slightly above it. So it's, it's a real kind of shock to your system. And when you've done that and you've crawled through these tunnels, you've got to run four miles back to camp, soaking wet, so all your equipment and your clothing now is weighing double. So for a nine and a half stone guy like me, I'm probably carrying something like four, four stone of equi equipment and my rifle. Then um, you run back to camp and you've got to be so composed and ke have kept your rifle clean enough that you can fire 10 shots on, on you know, 20 shots onto a target and get at least 10, 10 to hit, right? On my PRC, you only do, well, you start off doing the course up on Exmoor bit, so you don't do the four-mile jog to it. And you don't know when you start that they're not going to make you run four miles back to camp. You think you're up for this big six-miler, and it's the only kind of thing in your favour is you're not carrying a weapon and equipment. You're just wearing boots. And at one point, as I said, running has always been my weakest thing until I got to nearly 50. So I'm gradually falling back from the pack, but I won't, I won't give up in my mind. I can just see my mum there and my dad there saying, you're a failure, you're a failure. Right. And again, like I said, they, they didn't mean it, but that's all I, all I picked. And I couldn't give up, John, you know, I couldn't give up. It's like that, um, officer and a gentleman isn't it who says i got nothing to go home to that that is exactly how i felt and um 
And so as I'm gradually falling back, this big burly Marine with a white vest on, big moustache drops back, and I just thought, oh, that's it. He's going to say, right, mate, just stop there. This isn't for you. You know, transport will come and pick you up or something. He come back, pats me on the back. He goes, well done, mate. He said, in the Royal Marines, we ain't looking for supermen. We're looking for guys just like you that won't give up. And, uh, yeah, that was it, mate. I, I was got into the Royal Marines. Because you got posted, uh, I read somewhere, in Northern Ireland. And it, it, it's weird because... Belfast is one of my favourite places to go. I think the people are great and things like that. And it's weird to think, oh, it's not that long ago that they were fighting there. What was it like at Northern Ireland? Because I've heard a lot of army people say it's one of the worst places I've ever been. Ah, John, it's just bizarre, mate. Just, you know, just bizarre. The first patrol we did over there, Bomb burst out the gate. You always like zigzag out the gate in case there's a sniper. Um, wait, they know you're going to come out this gate, right? It's the only place they can guarantee you are definitely going to be six, 10, 12 patrols a day, right? So there's always the possibility of snipers waiting for you. So when you go out the gate, you bomb burst out. And I remember our first patrol was in a place called White Rock, and the sun was just rising, so it was dawn. Um, streets were obviously abandoned. The guy on the gate opens this big gate for you. And you your brick commander just turns and goes, right, go. And you all just run out. You're carrying automatic weapons, you know, so basically mini machine guns. And then once you've, once you've legged it for 100 metres, you break into your patrol pattern, which could be a diamond or it could just be two guys this side of the street, two guys there. And you think, geez, this is a, you know, depending on what your politics are, this is a, a city in Britain. Yeah, yeah. And I'm carrying a machine gun and I'm walking down the centre of the main road. And cars are making sure that they give you, a, you know, this is serious. You don't mess with someone with a machine gun, right? By machine gun, I mean automatic weapon. And it's, um, yeah. Uh, and you're 19 years old. I mean, what, how, how is that, how does that make sense in, at, at what point did we get to where we send teenagers to go and kill other teenagers and, and it can't be sorted out in some better way, right? That's, that, that, so you say it's extreme. Yeah, it's extreme for many reasons. And, and then, um, funny thing is, nothing happens, right? I mean, every time you're in a vehicle and you drive past, a, a, let's say, a pub, everyone who's smoking in or hanging around the door of that pub will just stop what they're doing, drop their glasses or throw their glasses at you and then just look for rocks, any rock. This is at adults, right? This can yeah. be a guy who's 50 years old. For the most part, it's kids, right? But it, it, it can be anyone and they'll just look for it and they'll just throw it at your patrol. This is the amount of uh, hatred that's been, you know, developed in this awful, awful situation. Um, but other than that, it, it's quiet. You know, you've done all this intense training for six months. You've had a six-month build-up to this point. 
you've been shot at, you've been bombed in, in your in your practice, you've been firing, you've done live firing while you're on patrol in practice. You know, you've had targets pop up that that dressed as a you know an IRA gunman or whatever, and you've had to react quickly. And if you haven't, the the referee who's who's watching over you goes, right, you're dead. <laughs> right? It's 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 all serious, but there you are on the streets of Belfast and nothing's happening. And of course, when nothing happens, there's a part of your brain says, like you've been lied to a bit. It, it, they've, they've made out this is more than, than it actually is. And then, of course, you get a bit complacent, don't you? Because, yeah. you know, if you haven't got rounds winging in at you, you think, oh. But anyway, you, it, as a Marine, you keep it as professional as, as you can because that's what Marines do, right? And then about a week later, Excuse me, might have been a bit bit longer, but the, we our our team got moved to another location, and it's because it was the voting night in Belfast, and traditionally, being obviously a British vote, the IRA will do everything they can to disrupt it, to, to disrupt the um, the sort of British democratic process, as, as as it were, because they obviously support an Irish one. Um, and so we were moved over to to put a presence on the ground to protect people that are, you know, going to going going to vote, protect them from being intimidated or whatever it, it, it might be. And we bomb burst out the gate, like I say, zigzagging. We broke into our um, patrol routine because we were new to this area. They gave us a what's called a conco which is a, which is a continuity officer that's a that's a, a soldier from the regiment before you that served there who knows all the ground knows the dangers recognizes the players as as we would call the you know who we believe to be our our enemy and and uh yeah so we got this conco with us and we we got to a patch of uh, like it was like a little park, right? And as I stepped foot on the grass, suddenly just a bang, bang, a bang, 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 right? Automatic rifle fire, right? On single shot, but you know, a, a, a high velocity rifle coming down, and I'm looking, and the grass is going pew right by my feet so he's got his sights on he's trying to kill me right unfortunately he's missed i actually know the guy's the guy's name so all you can hear is our brick commander scream take cover take fucking cover and instinctively you're all like ch -ch, and you, you hear that ch -ch, that cocking your weapons echoes off all the walls around this park right it's a real kind of dramatic scene and we just leg you leg it as fast as you can for cover and it's a park so there isn't much it was just one like outbuilding and we dive behind it and as i put my head back around to try and get some shots off at this sniper there's our tail end charlie so the guy who's behind me jock laying spark out on his front in the middle of the park now I'm the first aider in 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 the team, and irregard or regardless of that, uh, 
it, it, as a marine, you're all trained to, to drag someone into cover, right? If when when they when they're hit, so I didn't think twice about running back out to save my, you know, to save my mate. You could just be getting picked off on the on the ground now. As so I got up to run back, brick commander screaming, "Chris, get down, get fucking down!" And I'm like, no, "I can't do, I can't do that, right? I can't do it." But as I started going towards Jock, he went like this. And you could see he was in shock, even from like this, you know, 50 metres where you could see the shock on his face. And he looked like that and he saw his rifle was over there. His electronic equipment was over there. And in that instant, he got up, grabbed his rifle, grabbed his electronic equipment, just came running over to, um, to where we were. So I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. So I got him down, ripped open his combat jacket, ripped open his flat jacket or a Neva vest, as, as we call it. And I'm like, Jock, you're not fucking it, mate. I am, I'm hit, I'm hit. You're not fucking it. I can't find any holes, right? It was just one of those situations in life that doesn't make any sense, right? There's no, there's no entry wound. There's certainly no exit wound. Um, Anyway, the long, tall and short of it was, is yes, he was hit. The IRA, I'm going to call them a gunman. I mean, it's not, he was actually using a Kalashnikov, which is anyone would say he's not a sniper rifle. It's just um, the, the uh, run-of-the-mill issued weapon for the IRA back then, right? And obviously the Kalashnikov is a Russian design yeah. Uh, manufactured in Russia and China, I believe. So where the hell they got there? <laughs> you know, they were getting a lot of funding from North America, the IRA, to, to purchase um, these weapons by people that were sympathetic to the cause in in predominantly Irish communities like Boston and places such such as this. If, if I get this right, and uh, so he's opened up with a Kalashnikov on us. Not not. If it had it been a proper sniper rifle, this might be, have been a different conversation, right? It's still a deadly 7.62 weapon, but it fires something called a short round as opposed to a long round. That short round doesn't carry as much impact, apparently. And so what had happened is the first round had gone through, through Jock's weapon sling. The second round had taken the antenna of his electrical equipment and the third round and bang it hit him smack in the chest it didn't even hit the uh, fiberglass plate that you have this compacted fiberglass plate over your heart right for for obvious reasons didn't even hit that it hit above it the round then flicked up and landed in the pocket of his combat jacket so he still he still got it right and of course being hit with a 7.62 round from about 50 meters was the equivalent of having someone hit you as hard as they can with a sledgehammer. Um, and uh, full credit to Jock, when they, we tried to shove him in the ambulance, he refused to get in and he, he said, no, I came out on patrol with you. I'm going to go back on patrol with you. Um, and he got up early the next morning with this, by now a huge bruise, um, over his heart, got up on patrol to make sure he went out with one of the other teams. So got back on the ground at the, for the first uh, 
possible opportunity you know so yeah that's that's why we're a bit proud in the royal marines you know did did you have an unfortunate thing of seeing anyone getting killed when you were working in the marines um let me think i i'm just trying to think because lots of marines were killed while i served right and i yeah. I, I knew many of them like they were my friends like i mean um it, marines live a very alpha male lifestyle getting drunk getting in fights doing stuff like two of our lads were killed surfing on a train in thailand and it went under a bridge so i think you can right. you know see what happened there one of my mates uh four two commando was running running away from the police on a drunken night out jumped off the the roof of a building and landed on a spike and it just went straight up through him um this is in addition uh to all the lads that get killed on motorbikes and cars and all this sort of stuff. Um, when I was on the gate in Belfast one day, so I'm manning the gates, so I've got my SA80 here held up right in your hand and you're opening this gate to let the cars um, and foot patrols in and out. And occasionally you, you, or you, you'd completely search a car underneath just to make sure it wasn't bringing in one sec. Yeah, to make sure it wasn't bringing in a, you know, a, a, an IED or whatever. And uh, I let this patrol out. And half the patrol went out the front gate, half the patrol went out the back gate. And they obviously broke into their patrol routine. And about six minutes later, you just suddenly heard bang, 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 bang. I don't know if that was 19, but it, that was supposed to be 19 high-velocity rifle shots going off. So, of course, you don't know what's happening. I'm listening to the radio because we had a radio in in, in, in the Sanger. Um, I'm downstairs because I'm opening the gate up in, in, in the watchtower. This chap called Simo, really lovely lad. We're listening to the radio and it comes over the call sign, contact, wait out. Contact means one of the teams has been hit, right? Yeah. Um, then it comes over, right, um, cars driven past the patrols, fired two shots at the guys. The guys have returned, you know, this 18 or, 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 or 19 rounds. Uh, casualty, that's the thing, obviously, no one wants to hear. Um, and then uh, shortly comes over radio, casualty's dead. Um, and that was that was about in the second or third week of of our tour, right? And uh, yeah, so that was kind of the closest, like in military terms. I had, I think, two friends, or one was a, a friend that I actually shared the room with in Northern Ireland. We we we, we shared a, a grot as we call them a bedroom uh he hung himself shortly after that tour and one of our uh colleagues on when i was on ship i was on ship for a year 
he hung himself in his cabin. Uh, another chap while I was in blew his head off with his SA-80 uh, while, on, while on guard duty one night. Um, but as opposed to physically seeing a dead body, no, that didn't come till later in my life. Um, the first was when I drove to India. I drove a bus to India and back with 17 volunteer workers. We were writing articles about people living in poverty for for a Danish organisation. And over there, you can just be driving along and there's a dead body in the road. And what they do is just put bricks around it so that, you know, just to kind of give the cars a bit a bit of warning to drive drive around it. I don't know if... I'm guessing superstition has a lot to do with, with kind of stuff over there. Uh, then my stepdad died, as you say, in your, in your arms. He died quite young. He wasn't that much older, older than me, my stepdad. And he, he died of leuke the, the effects of le leukemia. Uh, then my mum died of, uh, asbestos poisoning or mesophilioma, as you, you might hear it. Uh, referred to she she ingested it or, or inhaled it as a nurse working in Charing Cross Hospital in the 60s they'd done a lot of uh, reconstruction work there because of the the bombing in the blitz and of course nobody well <laughs> I'm sure some people probably suspected the dangers of asbestos but you know how it is these psycho corporations just put it out there my mum breathed it in and Again, you know, she died a very drawn out and uh, unpleasant death. Uh, and then my, I say best mate, I've got, a, you know, a few people I consider my best mates. And uh, my best mate, Lee, was the chap that I drove to India with. And we'd, we'd always kept in touch and spent sort of time together, always been out partying a lot. And he... He literally drowned uh, on a on a holiday in Portugal, and um, yeah, <laughs> kind of like if I say we're all in a bit of a worse for wear state, I think people will know what I'm getting at. And I had to walk down the beach and go and identify his dead body. Um, that was quite an ex quite a. Yeah, that's the sort of thing you don't really want to go through in your life. Not to mean, <clears throat> well, you've gone through plenty. Haven't you? You've uh, bad things in your childhood, then in the Marines and things yeah, like that. Yeah, please don't get me wrong. You know, anybody listening, this is not a feel sorry for me. This is called life. And you either get on and deal with it and crack on, and then you'll have a brilliant life, or, or you, you you internalize it and you don't cope with it and you let it control you. And, you know, people die. It's, 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 it's just the way it is, isn't it? And I'm, I'm okay with that because I'm going to be dead one day and I don't want people to be moping around when I'm gone. It's one thing everyone's got in common, isn't it? It's a sad thing that everyone's got in common, but everyone's going to die at the end. Uh, but no one knows when the, 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 the bit I didn't understand was how you went from the Royal Marines Tending up in uh, Hong Kong because not not many expats. If someone from England moves, couldn't it's normally like Spain or Australia or something like that. How did you end up in Hong Kong? Oh, good question. Um, so 
in a nutshell, and as you probably gathered, I'm not good at doing nutshells. <laughs> I just like to tell tell the you, you know. You'd be surprised how many podcasts have been on, John, and they're not like you. They ask you a question, and as you start to try to jump in and ask you another one, it's like, well, hang on. (laughs) I haven't answered that one yet. Some podcasts are awful for it, right? But, um, yeah, I'd done all the stuff in the Marines that you'd kind of want to do in a career. So I'd done the combat thing or the the active service in Northern Ireland. I did the... uh, Arctic warfare and survival training up in the uh, north of north of Norway, which was very tough, but but certainly something looking back that I'm so glad I did. Very fortunate to be a um, part of a 12-man high security detachment on one of the aircraft carriers for a year, and we literally um, got to sail around the world. We sailed to Barbados once. It was just I'll never forget it. Just best one of the best experiences of my life really just it's like now everybody kind of accepts going on holiday because most people go to foreign exotic places but back then people did you you your your silly friends didn't travel they might if their parents were rich go to sort of spain or something right um so yeah there i am on an aircraft carrier um sailing around the world at the same time every time i got leave during my time in the marines towards the end of it i'd get indulgence flights so i'd pay 30 quid to fly to all these exotic locations around the world on a to hong kong it was a british airways jumbo jumbo jet so the so the british military buy spaces on these planes for their people going back and forwards and sometimes these spaces aren't filled so you can chuck them 30 quid and hop on that plane and you go to the other side of the world. And I used to drink more than 30 quid's worth of alcohol while I was on the plane. It was just a, a good deal. <laughs> then I'd get to Hong Kong, spend a week there, and then hop on a plane to go over to Thailand and check that place out. This is 30 years ago now, or 25 years ago. The most incredible. I'm 24 or 25 years old, 23, and I'm in Bangkok. 25 years ago not like it is now like a holiday package tourist safe destination this was insane the stuff you saw i can't repeat it <laughs> it's like disneyland for men isn't it that's what my mate said yeah and some of it was uh let's just say for quite sick sick men or or let's say men with certain uh perversions which i found quite upsetting john if i was honest uh, but you know, not not that I'm an angel myself, but it's some of those beautiful girls over there just getting abused by people that over here wouldn't get a, wouldn't get a bloody look in. It's yeah, and we're talking little boys as you know as well. Yeah, not a friend of mine's mum and dad said they got given a menu. They're just in a restaurant, and it had like ages, you know, like kids' ages. It just got like put off the table, and they were like they couldn't get it off the table quick enough. But I don't, it, it's hard to. I, I don't think I could be around that sort of behaviour without doing something, especially if you'd had a drink or something. You'd just be looking, thinking they need locked up or even worse, hiding. Yeah, it's a funny mindset, mate. Because spending as much time in Asia as I have, you'll meet people that have been travelling around, and they've you know hooked up with some Johnny, and that guy's gone just come out with his story of how he's you know well what what we would call rape some 
fucking children the night before. And in his like uh, sociopathic mind thinks, thinks that's a normal thing to come and tell fellow travelers. And the uh, people who've told me these stories has just been like fucking horrified, you know, the horrified at this psychopathy that this person seems to think this is something to boast about. Right. Weird. But, um, so yeah, so I, I, I had a great time in, in, in the military, but I got to the point where I kind of felt for someone that only joined for a bit of life experience and a bit of a bet with my mate who said I couldn't do it. I'd done all those sort of tick box things that you'd want to do. And I, I just felt it was time to move on really. But it's very difficult in the forces because like a lot of jobs, they're, they're paying your mortgage. I was I bought my first house at 22. They're paying your mortgage. They're paying your health care. They're giving you more holiday a year than you can shake a stick at. All your needs are taken care of. All you've got to do, hold a rifle, say yes, sir, even when you don't really mean it. Yeah. Right? It's, it's quite a simple deal, right? The thought of going outside, as we'd refer to it, into City Street, it's... Yeah, it's quite intimidating. You know, for a start, you got, I mean, these days, I'm guessing the lads get probably paid two and a half grand a month or something. you got to find that somehow. And you've got no skill, you know, other than killing people, which isn't, unless you want to be a, a mercenary or a pirate hunter or a security guy, it's, it's, it's can, can be very challenging to settle into uh, civilian life, as I found out, right? So I got involved in a business. I won't bore you with it, but it was marketing electronic products. And when I get my teeth into something in life, that's it. There's no stopping me. I, I've almost become obsessive with it, like like I have been with writing, like I probably have been starting a podcast. Um, you know, I just kind of like throw myself in. I'll put all my expenses into it, whatever. And I got really promoted quite quickly in this marketing company. I became what they call a silver executive um, producer or something it was called in, 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 a, um, in a short time. So I'm two positions away from the top ladder in the company. Um, by pure happenstance, I got put in touch with someone in Hong Kong who was in the British Army, a Hong Kong guy, but in the British Army over there who who was massively into this kind of marketing and between us we built the largest marketing network for this company that we marketed products for in in the asia pacific basin so i had about a thousand distributors in hong kong my first check off that business was two thousand six hundred pounds you've got to remember this is 25 years ago Right. So I'm getting two thousand six hundred pounds from my business, one thousand two hundred pounds from being a Marine. That that was. That's a lot of money now, but I can imagine then it would be about three times as much. Was it? Yeah, it was it was good, you know, and I'd worked hard for it. I I put three years into this business, you know, so four years I got to the point in the Marines. Where I thought I kind of done everything as a, as an, I'm not talking about a career Marine now. Career Marines absolutely love it and, and they do 22 years. Right. I wasn't really that sort of maybe if I'd gone special forces, which I, I didn't really feel I wanted to do back then, I probably didn't feel I could have done it. I, I would have stayed longer, but 
as it happened, this business came up. By the time I'd done three years hard work and seen my notice out, that was seven years in the Marines for me. By the time I got out to Hong Kong, where the you know the vast majority of my business was, all that hundred thousand dollar turnover a month had just folded. This company we were networking for, the, the products just became shitty and rubbish and gimmicky, and they couldn't churn them out fast enough to support this growing network. It's it's a it's like a design and production thing with the, the OEMs in China, the equipment manufacturers in China. And it was just destined to fail. But of course, you you only learn by failure, right? So it's not something you can kind of see at the time, or, although I did have my suspicions. And that's it. I'm in Hong Kong. I went into the company office. The managing director looked at me and went, you're a distributor. They don't work hard enough. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right, mate. And I, I literally spun around in a 180, walked out the door. And by the time I got to the door, I already knew, A, I was never going back to this business, even though it was still going on. I still had a thousand distributors. And B, I was never going to think about it ever again, meaning it's done, it's dusted, no point thinking about it, move on, right? Unfortunately, I moved on to crystal meth, <laughs> which not the best career career move, John, you know? So how did you get crystal meth? So you're like a business person. Did, was it the fact that your business had gone under and you, you felt a bit down, you wanted someone to fill that void, or was it, were you just in a bar and you got offered it? How, how, how do you go to crystal meth? Um I was working in a computer company, right? It was a trading company, so trading computer components. It was a very fickle market for somebody who didn't speak very much Cantonese. And if you weren't right there at the leading edge of it, it's like trading on the stock market. You couldn't make those deals. So we had this crazy eccentric Chinese boss. If anyone's interested to learn more about my story, it's, it's all in my first memoir, Eating Smoke. Um, my second memoir being 40 Nights, which is all about um, how what some people might call recovery, but how I got, got my mental health back and, and I developed the philosophy to go out in life and actually achieve what I want rather than what sort of other people wanted for me. Right. But, um, I'm in this company. It's very boring because our Chinese boss had only employed us for being Westerners because we have white faces, yeah. um, in his ancient Chinese way of thinking or old school thinking. He thought if customers come into the office and they see a load of white faces, they'll think he's this big international business which he was. He was the biggest trader in uh, DRAM, the memory chips in, in, in the world. He was one of them. Each one of these deals can make a quarter of a million dollars. Huge. You know, you're getting someone from Panasonic phone up. They need 650,000 chips for their new range of TVs. You can see it's huge money. Some of these chips are, you know, $100 each or whatever. It was real big business of which I was not a part of because I couldn't do the trade. It got really boring, John. Seven months sat at a table, 
occasion we get given letters to type up and of course I'd come from the Marines I was used to being active or at least having a lot of free time this company was was 10 hour days um so we ended up fucking around a lot writing stupid stuff on the typewriter and sharing it with other people in the office and one day there was a guy called Neil Diamond who's schizophrenic right and I don't see I don't mean that in any way disrespectfully, but what I do mean is that's the only way he got a position with this company is this crazy old Chinese boss didn't care about any of it, didn't even wouldn't have even realized that due to the language barrier. He just let this guy have, have a job. And we I become really good friends with Neil. You know, you you, you got your expat clicks over that clicks over yeah. Asia and they become like your mini family, right? And in Hong Kong it's very big for that expat sort of scene so one day i'm in the toilet taking a pee i smell this slightly funny aroma it wasn't a horrible aroma it was just different a bit, a bit chemically and as i turn to go the cubicle opens and neil comes out of it and he's like chris so i'm not not naive i knew i knew this wasn't about having sex so it had to be about drugs right so yeah. I went in there and he's like, right, have you ever tried crystal meth? And I'm like, no, nah, I've heard about it. Apparently it sends you mental. <laughs> Give me some. <laughs> right? So he set up this um, silver foil, put this tiny little crystal, it, I mean, literally smaller than a, a grain of rock salt, put it on, heated it, shoved this um, $10 note rolled up in my mouth and went, right, suck that. And I went, oh, okay. And that's all I did. I just sucked one tiny little bit of vapor off this crystal. By the time I got back to my chair, whoa, life as I knew it had changed. I felt utterly brilliant beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. I'd been out on the party scene at home. You know, the, da the dance era was huge back then, the, the dance era and, and alongside it, the rave scene, right? And it was a wonderful time for many of us. It was a time of learning. It was a time of getting rid of the old life and all the, all the indoctrination that we'd received as kids from our parents' generation. It was about sitting down on the floor of a grungy nightclub, sharing a spliff with a you know, a refuse collector when your parents had always gone, Oh, you don't want to be one of them. You want to, you know, you should aspire to be a doctor son or what, what, what my parents weren't particularly like that, but you know, you get the, we, the UK was cla very class-based, you know? Yeah. So I was, even though my, you know, my parents were sort of, I don't know what you call them, like maybe lower middle class, but, that didn't mean that they didn't at times do, I mean, my dad was a salesman, so he was working class, right? I, let's not focus on all that nonsense, but, but, but there I am. Yeah. So, so what I'm trying to say is, is through the dance era, lots of us learned who we really were and it was, and so I haven't got anything really that massively bad to say about it, but of course also a significant proportion of the dancer probably went on to, experience addiction because when you get given a drug that masks all your insecurities and your feeling and 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 that trauma that we talked about earlier it's just gone 
No longer are you second guessing or questioning, even though all of this is subliminal. Like I didn't go through life going, oh, I'm second rate. I feel this. I'm true. I, I didn't even know. I didn't. Even, it's only as an adult I can look back now and realize I was right. So. So, yeah, it's a very dangerous thing when you 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 ingest or you inhale this chemical and it makes you feel absolutely like the most brilliant person on the planet that ever lived in throughout history, capable of doing anything that you want. I mean, anything. Um, because it's popular in America and other countries, crystal meth, but obviously I'm not, I'm not on the heroin scene. I probably don't know everything that's going on, but in England, you, hey, you never really never hear too, a crystal meth. Never too late to start, John. <laughs> that's good advice, isn't it? Just get on heroin. <laughs> Good job I'm not a school teacher, isn't Other it? Other to me, though, yeah. I'd yeah. have to be apologising on Twitter now for my naughtiness. You never see a heroin addict that's overweight, though, and I'm always trying to lose weight, so I could maybe do that just to help with the diet. Yes. As a drug worker, we refer to them as problematic heroin users, not 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 addicts, because um, the worst thing about everything that I'm probably going to tell you, and it gets pretty shitty, John, is is other people. You can handle sticking a needle in your arm 12 times a day. You can handle living in utter squalor. You can handle, you know, be it the loneliness, the depression, the anxiety, the poverty, doing your shop, your fortnightly shop with £1.87, getting caught shoplifting because you're that de desperate to survive, right? And all because of the trauma that you didn't deserve to suffer when you was, you know, four years old that is now manifesting as an adult and it needs resolution. You know, you can't, you have no choice in this. It is in there and it will come out, right? Mine came out in the form of, of drug addiction. Other people's come out in the form of um, sex addiction, shopping addiction, gambling, unhappiness, being a general grumpy person, being an abuser, you know, m many other ways. Hopefully a lot of people find inner peace without without all of these um vices right but it wasn't the case for me so why i'm really careful about the language that i use is you know we need to start realizing mental health is a chronic um phenomenon in our society especially now with this lockdown right people committing suicide we shouldn't be giving them names we should be trying to understand what they're going through. People that are, like I said, stabbing needles in their arms. It's they not doing it by choice. You know that. Well, some of them might be, but it, it, it's a manifestation of, of childhood trauma turned into adult mental health. And, and the last thing you need when you're in that situation is people ostracizing you even more. So yeah, it's very hurtful when you're just trying to make sense of the world and stay alive and people are calling you crackhead and smackhead and, and all this stuff that a lot of our people are. So they think that's acceptable. Like imagine if your wife got cancer or your child and people started referring to them as a cancer, right? Started referring to them by their condition. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You'd run up and give them one of them and you'd, be well within your right to right we wouldn't accept it but when it comes to people that have 
developed a mental health condition, there's people in our society deem you, you can call them by the condition. So if you're suffering addiction, you can call them an addict. Why not call them a father or a you know yeah, yeah. good person or or someone who's struggling? In my case, pilot, skydiver, best-selling author, you know, inspirational speaker, life coach, quadruple Ironman runner, <laughs> length of Brit, you know, ran the length of Britain, ultramarathon a day with a fifteen-kilo backpack. You know, why not use these terms about me? That that's gonna boost my self-confidence right but no still loads of people call me addict right or i'm not sorry john not not certainly not having to go at you or anyone else but if we don't get this out there oh no that's all well it's about learning isn't it like i'll know from the future not to say addict and things like that and it, it it's better coming from someone like you that's been through it as well talking to the future because i think people go down them paths and they don't feel like they've got any hope like they've just given up ways to see someone like yourself that's gone through that book, come out the other end and they're successful and things. I always think that's a, that's always good for, especially young people to you. That's maybe thinking about going down that path. Yeah. Just it, it's that old saying, isn't it? You treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, um, it's as painful watching somebody you love in the throes of addiction as it, as it is watching someone with terminal cancer. I mean, you know, all, all with cancer, which could be terminal. And in the same way that addiction, you know, it, it's actually statistically rare. People die through addiction, believe it or not. The long-term effects of abusing your body, obviously, it's probably going to affect your longevity. Um, but it's still, you know, imagine a parent watching their kid that they love, that they've had from a baby, and now it's sticking needles in its arm just, just to try to function you know, to get some balance in life. And and then, of course, you get a phone call to say that they overdosed last night and they're dead. It's, it's, it's none of it good. And I chatted to someone yesterday. Um, I need to be careful what I say here, but they are chronically unwell. They are the most unwell person in Britain today with what they're suffering from, right? I, someone said, Chris, can you help my mate, please? He's going to die. So we had, a, I just called him up yesterday. So I'll oh, watch your podcast, right? So that was just amazing. It is amazing for me when people say that. It just blows me away, to be honest. And I just had a chat and I ran him through a few basic things about how, how to think. You know, because we've been indoctrinated by mass media and, and people that don't, people that want us to earn money for them, people that want us to buy into their system of indoctrination, a.k.a. the education system, right? People that don't want us to flourish, people that want us to get fat and ill from diabetes and buy their shit, people that want us to max our credit cards out just to buy a bloody sofa that, that you sit on, right? Or have a car out front that's just a rusting lump of metal that feed feeds your ego right this is the corruption in in our you know our elders it's not like being in a, a an indian tribe where the job of the elders is to get the young braves and the young squaws to you know be able to think for themselves and, and go out in the nature and pr provide for the tribe whilst not damaging the nature okay 
whilst respecting the, the, the nature and the universe, which as we know they call the great spirit, right? What a beautiful education, beautiful, complete opposite of what our, our elders just want to screw us up into physical and mental health conditions, right? To make money off us and sell us all this crap medicine. So, so I lost my thread a bit there, but yeah, so I chat, chatted to this chap and you, you know, let's make no mistake. He's dying. He's not got long left to, to go. Um, and yeah, in just a 20 minute, half hour phone call, he said, Chris, no one's ever said the things that you said to me in my, why, why has no one else ever said this before? I was, so they probably don't know it, mate. You know, they probably don't know it. And that was it. And he was in tears. I was almost in tears. It was, you know, it's, it's, it's a bloody tightrope for a lot of us, this life, you know, it's wonderful. I wouldn't change it. You know, I wouldn't change it, but it's, um, it doesn't have to be as miserable as it is for so many people. How did you get with the triads? Is that through the crystal meth use? Did you start taking it and get into debt and you had to work for them or, or the 14K, wasn't it? They're like a branch of the triads. Yeah. So cut long story short, I went through a bizarre series of jobs like the one I told you. I either got fired or I resigned from them. So about seven or eight jobs. I was DJ at the biggest nightclub in Southern China for a while, right? crazy i know i know i wasn't a good dj <laughs> i just talked i walked into the club in the morning in fact no i went for my interview they oh bit of a long story i tell you this story because it's it's actually more interesting than <laughs> talking about drugs but yeah i got the boat the fast boat into china or the slow boat to china as it was um got picked up in this big sleep line mercedes all the guys were carrying pistols. So a lot of enterprises in China are like this uh, conglomerate between government who have a say in everything, private ventures, and of course, organized crime. So I don't know how the, and, and the crime in China, at least back then was rife. It was a very, you know, the guy in the front seat, the, the guy that gets in the car with me is the manager of the, um, nightclub. He's Hong Kong Chinese, so they've got a Hong Kong guy because they're a bit more savvy with getting Western staff because of Hong Kong being a British uh, enclave back then. And so, um, you know, chatting to this guy, and he's like, right, okay, this Mr. Wong, and he points to this young guy in a driver's seat, Mr. Wong, uh, Chinese boxing champion, right? Sorry, I'm doing the accent, but it's, it's, <laughs> like, right. it's like it was yesterday. I don't mean to be pat. It's like it was yesterday for me, you know? But he says, Mr. Wong is the Chinese boxing champion. By boxing, they mean Kung, Kung Fu, right? Yeah. In English, they say boxing. Him, uh, your bodyguard. <laughs> I said, Mr. Lee, I don't, I think I can't remember his name. It's, it's, the names in my book are all pseudonyms from the original names. Right. So I get right. confused what the hell I've, I've called people. But anyway, let's call him Mr. Lee. He says, yeah, Mr. Wong's going to be your bodyguard. I'm like, Mr. Lee, I don't need a bodyguard. You know, I'm ex, ex Marine, right? I don't need bodyguard. Well, my, my ego didn't. I was got a member. I was in my twenties back then. And he's like, 
No. Quissa, they would call me Quissa, right? Quissa, Chinese criminal, kill you first, then see if you have money. You understand me? <laughs> I'm like, all oh, right, yeah, I do now. <laughs> He's like, they'll shoot you anyway. They don't, they don't, you know, you might have money on you, you might not. They'll shoot you first and then find out, right? And it was, yeah, it was, it was serious stuff over there. And my friend was on a train in um, Shenzhen, packed, packed commuter train, police come on board, dragged this guy off, just shot him in the head on the platform in front of the whole train. Right. Now, this is, it was, used to get um, beggars running around Shenzhen and I'm assuming all the other Chinese cities with babies, right? Babies are all doped up on Valium so they don't cry and they're borrowed or they're, they're rented from their mothers by these beggars who are part of a begging syndicate who work for the triad, so the crime gang, right? And run around with this baby, silent, which gives you a clue that something's not right, come running up to you like this. Right? So as a Westerner, you'd get off the train in Shenzhen or, or off, off the boat, um, and you got a group of 15 women all carrying silent babies run, run, running after you, yeah? People with stumps running after you like 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 yeah. this it was it's like you couldn't couldn't win you know it was what what do you what, what you're supposed to do and of course now you know that it's a crime gang it, it's um kind of makes more sense of it so so yeah so there i'm in china with china's boxing champion who's my, now my bodyguard if if i get the job this guy keeps saying so they took us in the nightclub that evening and I had to meet the Chinese bosses. And it was like meeting the old guard, these gray, austere, austere guys. Who, you know, this is the Chinese handshake like this. None of, none of this sort of business. And, and I'm thinking, why haven't they asked me to DJ? Why don't they just go and ask me to go up and DJ? And I'd, what I'd done in my nightclub in Hong Kong, my friend was my friend, uh, Roy. Hello, mate, if you're watching. Uh, Roy was the manager of my uh, nightclub called The Big Apple. Um, I used to go in a Big Apple every night. And so when I got this interview, I phoned up Roy and said, Roy, can I go in the club and, and like practice with the records? Because I, I haven't played a record since I was 12 years old. He went, yeah, Chris, go and help yourself. So I taught myself to DJ in a nightclub that was open, right, with punters all on the dance floor, um, doing what I'd seen DJs do, which was have the headphone on one ear play with a slider to get the sound from this one to this one and it and that was it that was the only experience i had before i went to china and uh so there i am at this interview going why haven't they asked me to dj why haven't they asked me to dj and uh at one point this killer tune came on and i'm all up for dancing anyway because i'm i'm by this time i'm high on crystal meth pretty much all the time it's all i ever really did after for, for you know for the I was in Hong Kong about 13 or 14 months and over half of that, you know, I was dabbling in crystal meth. So almost every day, if I could get some. So I went up to the stage in this nightclub, this huge multi-million dollar investment. I put my hands on the edge of the stage and I just slowly pushed up into a handstand walked across into the middle of the stage, flick flack back down and then just started dancing and getting the punters to come up 
and all the Chinese lads are running forward, putting their hand out, and I'm like, right, you, come up. And I got them all to line out, and they had a handstand competition. And some of them were really, really good at it. They walk all the way across across the stage. And and um, then I'm jumped down in the crowd, and I'm going around, you know, meet, meet, meeting all the groups of dancers and saying hi, and they're just, you know, sort of starry-eyed, really, because you didn't get many Westerners in China back then. And they really held you in esteem, you know. It was, um, it was quite, quite. You felt, you almost felt like a rock star. And when I sat back down at the uh, table to get a sip of beer, this Chinese manager, this Hong Kong manager that had always been going, "If you get the job, if we give you the job, right?" Just leant forward and went, "Right, when you take the job, we're going to double your money, okay?" <laughs> So I suddenly landed myself this job as DJ on double the money I'd ever earned in Hong Kong. You know, so about £2,000 a month. Again, we're saying, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And that was it. And I lost that job. Um, by, it was stupid. I was DJing on my first night. The club was packed. There was about 150 people on the dance floor. It might, might even have been more. And I'm playing the tunes that I've rehearsed. I taught myself all, all the beats, how to how to adjust the turntables to get the beats as they match, phase from one end to the other. I even got the bit from the Apollo uh, the Apollo 13 soundtrack when you go, Houston, we have a problem. I used to mix that in to, to, to the other tracks. And it was, yeah, I was quite pleased with my, my efforts anyway. And I'm DJing away, and this one of these Chinese managers comes up one of these grey guys and my Hong Kong manager's back in Hong Kong on business. He went and he said, you don't control crowd. And what he means is I'm not controlling the crowd, right? I'm like, what are you on about not controlling the crowd? I'm taking the music up, I'm bringing it down, they're all dancing. It, it's... And I turned to my kind of um, sidekick who they'd given me, this little guy called Wang. And I'm like, Wang, what does he mean? I don't control. I'm, I'm doing my best, you know. And, and Wang keeps like, trying to elbow me out the way. And I, I just didn't understand what was going on. Anyway, the kind of fifth time this guy come over and he's looking daggers at me going, you don't control the crowd. I, just, I told him to fuck off and I kicked this chair across the dance floor. I was actually, by the time I got the job, I stopped doing the crystal meth because I'm in China. I wouldn't have even known where to buy it over there, right? And of course, when you're coming down off a drug, you're not in the best uh, state of mind. So I kicked this chair across the dance floor. And in China, it's all about face. It's all about respect. You never make someone lose face like I just did to this manager, right? It, especially as you should be like anything a manager says, you just say yes. Even yeah. if you don't agree with it, you just say yes. It's about Confucius say Worker respects the manager. That's it. There's no, it's not like over here we can have a bit of a, you know, boss, you're being a knob. Don't do it like that. Do it like this. You, nah. Anyway, next night I wander into the club to go and do my set and there's a Western DJ playing there, right? And I walked up to him and, went, and I recognised him. He was the guy that was in the promotion video which is what they show me back in Hong Kong when I first went for the Hong Kong interview for this job, right? And I walked up and went, I guess I lost my job then. He went, 
Afraid so, mate. So after we finished playing that night, we went and got a crate of beer from the bar and went back to my my apartment. They'd give me a whole apartment, right? They'd have given you everything if you know what I mean. You know, this is they're gonna look after you as their Western DJ. So I'm in an apartment with this guy and I played in my set that I'd recorded. And he's like, Yeah, good. You got your your four pattern beat right or something, I remember him saying. I said, where are you from, Darren? He said, ah, oh, you wouldn't know it, mate. I'm like, no, no, I might. He went, ah, oh, place called Robra. I went, mate, I live in Whitley, half a mile up the road. <laughs> We're in China, and the DJ that comes to take over my job because I've screwed it up is is lives half a mile up the road from me. <laughs> but anyway, that was that, and I, of course I'd lost you know, I'd, I'd lost that job. And what it was is I said to him, why does he keep saying you don't control the crowd, Darren? I'm doing my best, mate. I've taught myself, you know. He went, Chris, when they asked for a DJ, he said, they're Chinese. They don't know the difference between a DJ and MC or bloody MC Hammer. They said what they mean is they want an entertainer like a Butlin's red coat to get up there on stage and get people doing handstands. And I'm like, Oh, I was good at that. <laughs> I didn't, you know, they just put DJ in the advert. So I thought they meant like Western, you know, like bloody um, Paul Van Dyke or someone. Or, oh, yeah. Or, yeah. or Sasha or somebody like <clears throat> this, right? So anyway, that was that. And when I got back to Hong Kong, I was starting to get depressed with it all now. I'd lost all these jobs. I had no money left. I went to try and live with my business partner who I'd been living with up until that point. And he, uh, you'll have to read it in my book, folks. I'm not trying to get people to buy my book. It's just, uh, it would take forever to explain all the Chinese psychology, but he asked me to leave his flat. So I, again, in my life, I'm homeless, got my military Bergen on and I'm wandering the streets, not knowing I've got no money in my pocket, nowhere to go, no job. And I'm chronically addicted to this drug, which I can't buy because I'm skint. So I'm, utterly exhausted now and shattered beyond belief and i saw a sign for a pawn shop so i went in and hopped my first rolex right uh bought that watch after northern ireland or might be norway got i bought it for 1300 quid hopped it in hong kong so uh, four years later five years later for a thousand quid so i only lost 300 quid on that that investment of course i had a thousand pounds or ten thousand hong kong dollars to go and put a um deposit down on a flat and buy some crystal meth of course <laughs> so i was able to buy more crystal. i never bought a lot of it this stuff is so strong it's pure amphetamine it, no it's pure methamphetamine not amphetamine so it's really really strong and i never needed a lot of it to get high or stay high for a week right and incidentally to give you an idea of your mind state i was staying up for up to nine days at a time without sleep and working full time and maybe eating two or three bowls of noodle in that time or maybe a mcdonald's breakfast when i came back from doing my doorman job and uh that's it so I got this cr crummy little flat in the back of Wan Chai, which is the red light district. I 
um, went into a nightclub, right? Because I knew a guy that worked in there, Glenn. And I thought Glenn might just know if there's any jobs. I'll do anything. I've, I've been doing door work and I was obviously this DJ, but I'll, I'll pour drinks if necessary. And I went in there and um, Glenn wasn't there. So I ended up talking to this Chinese guy and this Chinese guy was a bit cold looking, you can say, just a black, plain black suit, black tie. Uh, yeah, wonk, wonky eyes, which made him look a bit shifty. And I just said, excuse me, um, can you tell me where Glenn is? Glenn gone Thailand. You want job? I was like, yeah, I, I, I want a job. He said, you can do doorman job? Yeah, I can do the doorman job. Okay, stat here tomorrow night, eight o'clock, <laughs> right? That's it. <sighs> I'm back in work again. Back in work means uh, 10,000 Hong Kong dollars a month. 10,000 Hong Kong dollars means you can pay, you know, pay your rent sort of thing. Well, my first night in the club um i'm at the bar oh i'm walking past the bar and i'm trying to do a doorman job i've done it in two other clubs so i know you know kind of what it is and i'm at the bar and this uh, expat so it's a so it's a chinese run club unlike the other clubs i, I worked in john this is a chinese club the other clubs i yeah. worked in were expat owned they're owned by scottish people which goes back to the days of the the uh, traders back in the old days who were these, you know, Scottish um, uh, businessmen. But this club's Chinese, and the way you can tell it's Chinese, although I didn't really take this in at the time, is you have to go, um, it faces the sea. So this is your feng shui, right? Club faces the sea. That's for prosperity. If you've got water to your front, Good luck. This is why if you go to a Chinese restaurant and it's not facing the ocean, they'll have a fish tank in the window. So they've got water right. in front, right? Went downstairs. It was a mirror-lined staircase, right? To you and I, it's just a mirror-lined staircase. Probably loads of places like that in the UK, right? Not in China. In, in Hong Kong, that's to reflect the evil spirits out of the place, right? To stop right. coming in right we we might um go huh really but no it's very serious superstition as i was to find out is it's like it's so serious over there you know um there's other things like you have the mountains behind you for prosperity now it's all been co-opted into Western consumerism. You know, you have your coffee table that points south or something, but I don't know how sort of genuine that is. But over there, it's really serious. So immediately, you know, if you know what you're looking for, you're in a Chinese-run venue. Well, who's going to run a Chinese club in the red light district and the gangland district in Hong Kong, which is one chai? Obviously, the mafia, which in, which in Hong Kong and China, the triads. This ancient criminal fraternity. So I'm at the bar and this expat's going, Chris, isn't it? I'm like, 
how does he how does he even know my name well he went you know they're all triads my ears are like ping you know i come from a, a gang as in the british military right marines a band of brothers so i'm interested in this sort you know naturally i i have a kind of affinity with bands of brothers of which the triad is one of the oldest uh fraternities in the world right and in my mind it's it's cool young chinese guys with these wicked dragon tattoos who i used to train in the gym you know used to see when i trained in the in the gym and they're all shit hot fighters you know all good at the kung fu and they're all kind of bad boys aren't they so all this stuff is really appealing to a young lost man who who's still letting his ego write checks for him you know and running my life and uh I'm listening to this guy. He says, right, so Daisu there, you man. So Daisu was one of my fellow doormen. This six foot seven uh, Chinese guy. Looked like a horse. No disrespect to horses. Right? And all there, they wear these white shell suit tops. Like when the England craze was on and everyone wore white England shell suits, right? They they, they wore, wore them. This is back in the early 90s, right? Like the Gary Lineker sort of era around that, that time. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and they all wore blue jeans with white training shoes, all pretty much always white, white training shoes. And they had loads of gold. So just real wide boys. Right. And of course, if you ever saw down the neck, you'd start to see the dragon tattoo. And he said, yeah, take your man Daisu over there. He's an assassin. Um, violent hand in Chinese. He said every so often he'll disappear and the triad will smuggle him over the border into China to, to do a hit on someone. Then they'll smuggle him back into Hong Kong again. <laughs> this is like your normal first day at work. <laughs> but of course, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm, I'm just all ears, John, you know? Yeah, yeah. He said, your other man there, Chu Chai, right? This is this short squat guy, looks like an angel. Bob. He had the wavy bob hair that, that all the Mancunian bands had back then, right? Again, white top, big jewellery, gold watch. He uh, said, so yeah, Chu Chai is Magi. Magi means little horse, like a runner. And so basically a foot soldier for the 14K. He said, he don't look much, but he'll pick up anything in a fight if he thinks he can smash an enemy over the head with it. So basically saying this guy is a bit psychopathic. Unhinged. Right, yeah. bit hard, right? And um, he said, yeah, uh, Paul Eng there, that's the guy that had given me the job. He's Dilo. Dilo means big brother. Big brother is the gang leader. So in Wan Chai, he's the gang leader of the 14K. In Wan 14K is a worldwide organisation. But he's in charge of the Wan Chai. Um, he's certainly in charge of this nightclub, running this nightclub. And he'll have business with the other nightclubs who are probably um, headed up by another dialo, right? Um, he said, he don't, Paul don't look much, but don't fuck with him. Um, not unless you want to lose all your fingers and toes. <laughs> right? So 
again, my boss is a sociopath. This is crime gangs, isn't it? It's it's young people from deprived background. You know, education doesn't work for them, so they have got no prospects. You can't get the Rolex and the Mercedes because if you haven't got a job, you can't afford them. But these gangs open up and offer them a family, as it literally just done to me, right? Um, albeit I'm only a doorman, I'm not a triad, but I'll, I'll exp- come on and explain that. So, so yeah, you've got these people that their only way they're ever going to achieve anything in life is through crime. And you've got these people that are no longer, you know, treating them like abused children and angry teenagers that they'd be giving them a prestigious job. You know, they now wear the, the tattoo of the 14K. They're now a foot soldier. They've now got a band of brothers that worldwide is you know, thousands upon thousands of people. They're now respected. When we used to walk down the street, everyone else just gets like reservoir dogs, right? Yeah. Everyone yeah. else just get, gets out of your way because they, they see the signs, they see the dress code, right? Um, so that's it. Yeah. That, that, so there I am thinking I've just got another doorman job. And now I realize I'm employed by the 14K. Um, as I said, I was never a triad. I, I, I would say I never really wanted to be. And looking back, I'm glad that I that I wasn't. There have there have been white Western triads in in history, not 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 very many. And the triads will work with anyone if they think they can make money. So if you can sell drugs to them, they'll work with you. They they just don't really care, right? But to be an actual triad, you've got to be pure blooded Chinese. They don't even trust Hong Kong Chinese that were educated abroad. So John, the guy behind the bar, was educated in Switzerland as a chef went back to Hong Kong, wants to join the triad, but they're kind of like holding them at arm's length because they're very suspicious of anything foreign, right? It's a bit like that with the Italian mafia, isn't it? If you're not pure Italian or Italian, you can't get be a made guy, can you? Yeah. It's one of them yeah. things. I'm sure. I'm sure it's exactly the same. So, yeah, so there I was. And uh, it was insane in that club. Some of the things I saw were just i mean they were full on but for a young man who's trying to rekindle that excitement that he had in at times in the marines a lot of the marines was really boring as any any veteran will tell you shifting tables or waiting to wait you know five minute smoke break that turns into sometimes five or six hours it's it's but when it's firing it's firing in the military it's like a life like no other you see stuff that other people just they just couldn't understand could not never going to see couldn't understand and this is what i'm getting now john you know this is why it's all making sense to me the next morning the barman comes over uh quissa you come breakfast with us right so again it's confucius right worker respects boss boss looks after worker they're taking me for breakfast as part of their family or that's at least that's how it felt right like i say you're walking down the street the day before i was homeless living on my bloody backpack you know desperately unwell no money skin owed about seven thousand pounds in england pretty much sure my house had been repossessed i didn't even know what what had happened. i hadn't phoned home for months now i'm walking down the street it's you know, with the 14k this is this is i'm not saying in at 50 years old that i'm 
something to be proud of now, but I'm saying at 25, yeah. fuck you're proud, you know, especially when the rest of society has either laughed at you, ridiculed you or fired you. Um, so yeah, hope that answers your question. No, no. Well, well, after the 14K, how did you get off the drugs and how did you manage to come back to England? Did you not think when you, you started uh, getting addicted to drugs that you, that would be a good time to come back to England or did you give it a few months after work and or what, what triggered you to come back? No, you've got to remember, and this is really important, going back to what we were saying earlier about mental health, is you, when, when you're in the throes of addiction, certainly in the initial phase, you're not in charge of your mind. Right. Your psychology, your addictive psychology, right? So give an example, right? You've got the rat in the cage, okay? He learns if he pushes a button, he gets a food pellet. So what does the rat do? Well, he pushes a button, doesn't he? And he gets a food pellet. And he pushes a button and he gets a food pellet. Food pellet makes him happy. Eating does all this stuff with the neurons in your brain and all the chemicals. So you don't worry about life. This That's why we comfort eat, right? Because it yeah. comforts us. Pushes a button, gets his treat. What happens when you take the treats away? Right? What does the rat do? Well, he still pushes a button, doesn't he? Because... He's developed this neural pathway in his brain that push that button, I get the treat. Right? It's the same with drugs. Even when your life starts falling apart, well, how do you fix everything? Well, you push the button. That, that will fix it. You go and buy more drugs. You, your, your brain is telling you that is how that is going to fix things, right? This is why people spiral down into such devastating states that they end up homeless you know, lying in a pool of their own urine on the, in the gutter. It's, it, it's and if anyone watching this thinks that person like chose that life, then I'm going to say you're probably a bit stupid. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's addictive psychology. It's vicious. It's horrible, John. You know, you wouldn't wish it on anybody, right? So I I didn't have that ability to go right. Let's go. That that would have been rational. Addiction isn't rational. Addiction is the most un irrational thing, and it's got you, right? And it takes, it takes, depending on what it is, it, it takes months to get your head around what's happening to you. It takes years to actually look in the mirror and go, ah, this isn't working anymore. Well, that's called your moment of enlightenment, change, right? You go, this ain't working no more. Perhaps I need to rethink this plan, right? And then from that moment, well, that was 20, 25 years ago for me. I mean, took me about 27 years of drinking drugs pretty much every day, right? Not not the chronic addiction which I'm telling which which I'm telling you about now in Hong Kong, but but to wean myself off and get my thought processes more productive and you know, to love myself more and, and to empathize with the universe and get my energy from there rather than, you know, trying to bury it all with Drake. It was a very long process, right? Really long process. And, um, and I'm glad I went through it. You know, some people will go to a support group and they'll say, right, stop. Well, you know, and they, they use a lot of language, which I don't think is really very nice, very pleasant, as, as we said before. And they have this all this self hatred talk, right? And I'm not judging. If people want to do that, I have no. 
problem, you know, with people. If I've the last year, I've lost two best friends to alcohol poisoning. Right, Bill watched them drink themselves to death. Right, one of them still in just absolute denial. I haven't got a problem trying to get out of the hospital after his liver had packed up. So yeah. he could go to the offy and buy more. You know, wanted to go home. Right. Yeah, he's going to die in a chair, isn't he? My my other mate, I watched him die in uh, intensive care. Best friend, you know, he's in he's in my books. Again, another best friend I've lost through drugs and alcohol. Right, it's a it's a serious old subject. It's got to be taken seriously. We've got to educate ourselves more about what it's what it's about, sort of thing. Well, so, I've never really been around it. In the the first time I ever was around it, like badly, was Gaza. You know, Paul Gasco and the football guy. And I'd never been around someone that had, like, it's frightening really but to be, like, he'd do anything to get a drink. And it was quite sad because you, and you say about people in the gutter, it's not just people that are poor. And that Gaza's probably, I'd say, is England's best ever player. He had all the money, the women and that, and he still went down that route. So you can't just, you can't categorise people saying, oh, well, this will end up there because of this. So it, it, it's so bizarre. And being around that, I just found it, you feel a bit helpless, don't you, a little bit when you're around that sort of behaviour and what what can you say, what can you do? And Well, I tell you what, John, you, you've got such a nice attitude that it's good credit to you, mate, that you haven't had to go through what I did to become a sort of a... I'm not even a completely round... You know, I've still got my faults massively, but, yeah, I'm a much more well-rounded person than I was. I've... I've, I've I'd say probably know life more than your average person, a lot more than your average person, right? But when I meet people like yourself, it's good credit to you that you're so kind and understanding. You know, I can tell you haven't got a bad bone in your body. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that you've, that your parents, I'm guessing, have helped cultivate this human being that's that's, that's got such great qualities and that you haven't had to do drinking drugs to find it. I wish everybody could, you know. Did you, was your family life sort of stable? Oh, no, my family life was great. We, we, we didn't have loads of money or anything like that, but I had a mum and dad there, right and wrong and things like that. And I always had a bit of a purpose. I wasn't any good at school, so I left with no GCSEs, but I was good at rugby. So you just sort of focus on the rugby, forget about that. My parents were like, oh, if you don't get these GCSEs, you're going to be terrible. Just so, well, play to your strengths. So I, I didn't have them pressures of easy GCSEs, you're going to have to pass them or you're going to be an idiot or things like that. And I've always, I was, even at a young age, used to talk to old people and people used to say, you get old quick, do things that you enjoy. And I, I think a lot of kids these days have that problem where like, oh, I'm going to be an apprentice joiner. Like, do you want to be a joiner? Like, not really. And you think, well, why start that at 16? It's better to be at the bottom of a ladder you want to get to the top of than halfway up on you don't want to be on, isn't it? And I think yeah. a lot of young lads have, they put a ceiling on what they can do. So like, oh, maybe I could be a labourer. And you're like, is that what you want to be? And they're like, no, but I need some money. And even just saying to someone, oh, you could do that. You can tell it like enlightens them a little bit, doesn't it? You think, oh, well, I can maybe do something a little bit better. Yes. Yes. And, and there's a wonderful documentary um, on, on Gaza which he just tells his story. There's no press or media bias in it. It's just his and it's just heart-wrenching. You know, his best friend, I think when he's, let's just say, 10 years old, it might have been something different, but... Uh, oh, 
it was something like he was on they were on their way to match day you know they always went to match day together or, or some some scenario like this and his friend ran out like from between parked cars or something and just yeah got knocked it, it was something like I, I might have got it completely wrong but it was something that horror and you can see that paul was traumatized by it no, he's had a few cool. thing, uh, them things, I think, when he was little. Because I think when that Lala died, his best friend, I think Paul slept in the same room as the coffin and things like that. And he, he, if you talk to him, he's had a few things in his childhood that people don't know and a few things when he's older. And he, he, he's one of them people, he's got the nicest heart. And that's what makes it so hard because you just love him to sort himself out and things like that or find something to do that doesn't involve drinking things. But... It's just a, a, a sad state because it's such a nice blog. Yes, it's a like I say, it's a cruel affliction. It's a, it's it's a psychological. It's not an illness. It's not. It's it's a psychological. It's a learned psychological condition that we do for so many years when we're young. Drink, drink, drink. We do it in happiness. We do it in sadness. We do it when we get a job. We do it when we lose a job. We do it when we watch telly. We do it when we don't. You know, it, it's. It's a, a, a very toxic poison that we worship in this country. And of course, when you teach yourself to deal with all your emotions with this pint in your hand and you do it for 30 years, like, like Paul has done, like I have done it, it, you've created neural pathways that are almost impossible. You know, they're not impossible, but they very, you know, very difficult to to get out of that and you can even do it for 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 years for two years you can go alcohol free your life will be brilliant you feel utterly free you feel in control you feel like the devil hasn't got you any and it is the devil if you want to get biblical or you know it, it this is what when the bible talks about evil it's operating out of your lower self you know all your ego driven stuff is down there all your enlightenment stuff is up here. And when you operate, uh, uh, you know, when, when, when the devil tempts you with, with these things, you know, all, all the things we've talked about during this podcast, he's keeping you suppressed in your lower, you know, in your lower self, your animal self, operating out of your ego, right? Whereas your point of enlightenment is operating out of your human self, human law and natural law. Um, and that's, that's, you know, you know that's your good your goodness right but um yeah so you can have two years off the source and in that two you never think you'll go back on it yeah, yeah. Uh, you just think no way my life is just wicked now you know getting up early i've got no hangovers I get out and smash my fizz i feel great I watch telly and I enjoy it way more than I did when I used to drink, you know, might have been 12 cans of beer. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's just brilliant. And then a trigger comes along, which is something that destabilizes your mental state in, in any way. It could be a happy thing, could be a sad thing. And that trigger is enough to make, to reignite that trauma, to give you a general feeling of discomfort. And of course, what's your brain telling you? Like the rat in the cage, that you've, you, you've trained it so many years, your brain goes, ah, get rid of all that with a beer. 
all that feeling gone yeah and this is where, why you see people like paul it's it, it's it's so powerful it's really even though you know what it's going to cost you it's hard to say no look at george best yeah yeah had a liver transplant you know actually had part of his body taken out removed a donors put in you know the deal when you have that is is you're going to be asked not to drink after it yeah I, I, even oh i don't i don't want to I don't want to sound stigmatizing, but for George, bless him, couldn't stop drinking, could he? You know, no, no. so powerful. Well, it's weird the next day, even like I've never had a addiction problems, anything like that. But if I go on a stag do, we've drank Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. When you come back, the demons, it's in your head. You've got like this voice, haven't you? That's just saying, you're a scumbag. Oh, you the things you've done, like out you'd be like, remember when you didn't buy the, the chips when your mum gave you a pound, you bought sweets, you should apologize. And like you, in your head, you've got this voice that's saying, Oh, you shouldn't have done this. And you're bringing up stuff from like 10 years ago in your mind, and you sat there, you're shaking, you're shivering. And I thought, That's just a stag do. If you'd done that for a year or something, I couldn't imagine what them demons are like of like, you know, or playing the story for a year. Like, if I black, not blackout, but if you can't remember bits of a night out, you sometimes make it up in your head. Like you'll see on your news feed, a dog's gone missing in Manchester. You think, did I steal that dog? Because you're just going to worst case scenarios all the time, aren't you? In your, your brain the day after drink. So I can see how an alcoholic coming off a drink would struggle because it's so much easier just to go and open another can again and just get rid of all that anxiety and stuff like that. Yeah, that's 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 the cycle of addiction. That's that's a big part, you know, that's a big part of the continuing the cycle is, is not wanting to feel those horrible feelings and that horrible headache and the anxiety and the depression. And, um, yeah, it, 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 it really is for anybody listening. Who's got problems with drinking really should consider the one year, no beer kind of approach. There is actually an organization called one year, no beer, and it does really well with people. What I just did is I committed to one year with no beer. I just got so fed up with my behavior plus the fact I'd become a father. So it wasn't about me anymore. And I promised I, you know, I didn't mind being a bit human now and again, but I didn't want to make mistakes with my son. And so I just said, right, one year, no beer. And that's it. And it wasn't, it was absolutely not even difficult. Once you make that concrete marker and you start heading towards it and then you find actually it's quite one, for some reason that that marker gets rid of these voices in your head because you're focusing on the marker the one year point instead well some people do 90 days and then they do 180 days and then they decide to do the year um yeah i got to the end of the year did another year um the only reason that second year was interrupted was when i ran the length of the uk i got a shin splint after 500 miles right so I've got another 500 miles to run with a broken leg. And it was, the pain was unbearable. I, I just couldn't, couldn't physically run on it. And I had to, because I promised I'd do an ultra marathon, um, a day, every, every day. Right. And I'm raising money. I'm raising awareness of veteran suicide and money for a veterans charity. 
So again, it was just more reason why I just didn't want to fail in my mission. Um, so I went and bought a bottle of rum <laughs> and it was, I'm just looking at this rum thinking two years. And this is, wasn't an excuse. I wasn't like, as I said to you, when you're off it, you, you just, you're happy, right? Yeah. You're happy. It's not about like, oh, I've got an excuse to drink. But then there is that voice. It's like, oh, I'm going to have a drink. Oh, you know, and it, it's a, excuse my French, but it's a clusterfuck. You know, there's no logic to, well, there probably is, but not, not, not for you. And that was it. And I was sipping this whiskey to run, you know, having a tot of whiskey in the morning to enable me to then, run 500 miles <laughs> very yeah very damaged damaged limb um but yeah but it's great for people like, i always think stuff like this is brilliant for people that have got maybe going through it or even lads on the cusp of going through it, it it's good to see people coming out the other end i always think it's good with sport because young lads that are coming from maybe a rough background to see like a boxer that's come like Manny Pacquiao is inspirational. Like young lads in that country, it gives them a little bit of hope, doesn't it, that things can get better? Because I think a lot of people, especially with the media these days, is so depressing. Everything, you can't do this, you can't do that. Just seeing people like take that next leap, I think inspires other people around them to do something a little bit better. Yeah. We need. We all need role models, don't we? And there's never yeah. been a more important time for it for our young people. Um, a lot of them come from disenfranchised families with one parent missing. Um, the the awful role that social media plays in destroying people's identities and their self confidence. The ludicrous. Remember when I come back to this evil money system? Remember how I said it corrupts everyone in their power. This is why you see rappers rapping about kilos of coke and, you know, calling women all sorts of horrible names and stuff. And, you know, it, it, they're put in front of you for a reason. They're put in front of you to destroy your future. They're put in front of you to, to stick onto them. It's de they, they want this sociopathic, you know, Babylonian money mafia, as I call them. They... They want angry young men going out and stabbing and shooting people. They, they love it. They, this is this is like their dream come true, is to have this completely divided society that doesn't love each other, you know, because it's divide and rule, isn't it? You divide everyone, then you rule. Well, they're the minority, aren't they? You see it with the COVID thing. People that want to get life back to normal because the numbers don't stack up to do the measures that we've got. They've basically said there's two sides and the people that want to get back to normal, follow the signs like Sweden, they're out of lockdown, pointers, stuff like that. And then there's the other group where it'll tell you that you want to kill grandmas because you want to get things back to normal. And you think oh, emotional, that isn't the options. Emotional blackmail, isn't it? So. Yeah. Grassing on your neighbours and things like that. It's so odd, isn't it? it? Just I can remember it wasn't that long ago if you were a snitch, it was seen as a terrible thing, whereas now it's like, a good thing, according to the government, to grass on your neighbour because they've got six people around after, or oh, seven people around after a hard week's work, having a barbecue, and it's very odd. Yes. Um, perhaps we should talk about, let's, should we talk about that at the end? And I'll, I'll probably people want to hear what happened at the end of Hong Kong, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, you can read my book, folks, but... Cut a long story short, I, I entered what they were called, what was called psychosis. So 
people might have different views on what it is. I, I just think of it as the synapses in my brain were overloaded with the wrong chemicals. So rather than fire like this, they start doing this business and your reality warps. And it is your reality. It's not like you're high and you're, you're on a, like a crazy trip or something. It's like you're on a crazy trip, but you think it's real. You absolutely think it's real. And um, you can get very paranoid, uh, a bit like sort of say the paranoid schizophrenia, right? Uh, you can sense that there's a big conspiracy going on that you can't quite get to grips with but you've got to kind of unpeel these clues and make sense of them and and then right it, it i was in that phase for i don't know I, I, I probably on and off for three months or something right whilst working this job for the triad so fortunately they fired me before long because had I continued in my mindset, someone was going to get hurt and, you know, most likely that that was going to be me. Uh, I ended up crawling across a, a wire between my skyscraper and the one on the other side of the Jaffe Road in Hong Kong. And uh, again, I'm sorry to keep saying I'm not trying to get people to buy my book. It's just it's. I'm going to bore people to death if I don't get to the end of this story, right? So I'm crawling across this wire 70 metres, like, up in the air in the dark. In my mind, it's telling me if I can get across the building officer, everything's going to come good, you know? I'm going to understand my life. I'm going to understand why all these people have been like this to me during my life. It's going to be like the grander way. Everyone's going to be over there. Everyone I've ever met going, ha-ha, we fooled you, you know? We set you this challenge, Chris, but you've come through it good, son. Well done. You know, you're welcome. And, and I kind of got half a few feet out on this wire, and it's just ridiculous. I mean, it could snap at any minute, right? And then I'm like, hang on, I don't want to join you. I don't need to join you. I'm Chris Frew, and I'm fucking fine. The person I am, thank you very much, right? And, uh, in fact, I'll go one further. You're all a bunch of cowards. What? You need to put people through that to be one of you, right? This is my, how my mind's talking to me, right? And if you think about it, it is a little bit how, you know, we've always got that constant peer pressure in society, haven't we? Yeah, that there's just yeah. this sort of, you know, if we conform like this, we'll just have this big group of friends. And when it actually gets down to it, half of them are a bunch of cowards anyway. They've got no respect for you. So... It's just a bit bizarre. And this is kind of like the way my mind was working. And then I thought about my little brother and I hadn't even spoke to the little guy for months and months. It's weird. He's my best friend. And that was it. It just tipped me over the edge. And I had a nervous breakdown while holding on to this wire, doing what, what we call a commando crawl, right? And I'm looking down at these people that are like ants walking on the pavement below. And tears are just pouring out my eyes dropping through the air and i'm like what have you done who are you trying to prove you? you don't prove yourself to anyone chris except your kid brother now get off this wire and go and sort it out you know well I've, when i found myself back in england a lot of people i think they think 
because uh, that's the end of my first book they'd probably think my troubles were over right uh it's almost like they hadn't begun. I had another year and a half, possibly two years of just trying to sort it out and getting back to the person I was. And it doesn't happen. And to you have a moment of enlightenment when suddenly it's crystal clear, it all make it suddenly all makes sense to you. Your behavior, why have you been doing this? It doesn't, Chris, it doesn't work anymore. Why have you been doing it? And the way I explained it to this chap that I was talking on the phone with the other day, the chap that's really ill, is I just said, you've got to think of that four-year-old you that went through all that shit, didn't deserve it. You know, you quite, you are well within your rights to blame adults for what, what you had to go through. You're the one now looking after that four-year-old, Chris. You're the one taking care of that little boy. You're the man now. You're the adult. And what are you doing? You're sticking needles in his arms 12 times a day. You're making him go and shoplift Bovril because he ain't got, hasn't got any money to feed himself for the, for the week. You know, you, you're doing it. And, and, and that, that you can see how the enlightenment's working now. You're yeah. starting to see life in a way that's been shielded off from you before. And, and again, bang, the floodgates open. You have another nervous breakdown. You can't believe what you've done to yourself. You can't believe why it's not fair. It, I mean, it really isn't fair. Why is it the you know, the abused kids have to go through all this shit in life? Whereas the spoiled ones that get everything, they go on to be the sociopaths that run the run the companies and make millions right yeah it's really yeah. and and that and these sociopaths they're the ones that get all the respect because they drive the flashy you know cars and have the big houses whereas those little damaged little boys and girls that grow up so lost that they have to go through this horrible thing called addiction to to find out who they are um and this is all going through your mind that in, in this moment of enlightenment and, and that was it from that moment, I made a promise. I'd start getting some balance back in my life. Uh, it was 1997. I went and did a fire walk. I did a few things. First of all, I just cut the drugs down. I literally just went, instead of spending all my money on drugs, I'm just going to buy one bag, one gram. When it's gone, it's gone. I'll do the sleep. I'll do the wake up depressed. I do the watch TV, eat, eating toast, right? I'm not buying another bag. I'm, I'm, I've got to take action now. I've got to. In fact, to be honest, it's not a bad thing because my life, if you look back at it, it's actually become so painful. <laughs> Who'd want to live that life? My house was a mess. I had marks up and down my arms. I couldn't wear T-shirts because I was too embarrassed. You know, it's mental. So, so um. I did that fire walk to raise money to go and work with street children in Africa and uh, went out to Africa, worked with these beautiful kids and that was it. And I was firing, you know, I was back like my old Marine self, you know, nice new clothes, handsome, positive, good example to 
you know, a real good example from my teammates. So I was able to support them and quite lead, lead them. You know, I led teams of fundraisers around Scandinavia so we could get our money together to go and work in Africa and this sort of stuff. And, um, and like I say, John, I've never been an angel. I've, I never stopped the partying, really, if I was honest. I just, I learned to moderate it, you know, and I learned to take less damaging <laughs> substances although alcohol technically is the long term it's the worst one right it, it ask any drug worker worth their salt you give up the crack you give up the meth give up the heroin it's too much chaos in your alcohol very hard to give up it's so cheap so socially acceptable no one notices oh i have another beer chris they don't know that you know you're a problematic alcohol user, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what do you mean, Chris, you want a Coke? No, come on, get him a beer, get him a beer. They don't know what your family's going through. But you've got a child now. That, you know, that boy's going to ha have the same system of abuse put onto him if you don't sort your shit out, you know? So I'm just trying to say, for me, it was about getting balance in my life. I didn't want to be an angel. I didn't want to go to any clubs and or organisations and throw my hand up to someone, someone else's god or whatever, or, or call myself all these horrible names for the rest of my life. Um, and yeah, and I'm lucky. You know, I'm lucky that I, I lived through it and I survived, and um, I've now gone on to just achieve every single thing that. Well, I'm the only person I know that I've ticked every item, not just off my bucket once, but about 10 times over. I've been every single country I ever wanted to go. All seven continents, as I said earlier. Uh, scuba dived in the Antarctic on, on expedition down there. I've, you know, written a best-selling book. I've backpacked through every single country in North, Central and South America. I'm a qualified pilot qualified skydiver uh like i said like we said earlier i ran the length of the country without doing any training uh did a quadruple quadruple ironman so four nine mile swim 450 mile cycle followed by 108 mile uh run all in all in a week right uh, and all I trained for that was running three milers. And a big part of that is the diet because I'm, my, I eat a natural diet in tune with the universe, which again is something, knowledge that's just hidden from everybody. Um, and now I'm here talking to you, John. Well, actually, I mean, at least it's one of them stories we've been talking for hours. Normally you can wrap someone's life story up in 45 minutes. You covered everything basically whereas i feel like we could probably talk for the next 35 hours and still not like scratch a surface sort of thing but it's, it's been brilliant to get you on and i'm sure people watching this especially if they're going through problems and things like that with special x-forces that will really enjoy it and uh cheers for coming on chris thanks for all your time Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.